Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Saturday, vault time, folks. This episode originally aired on October 29th, 2019, and it is our Anthology of Horror, Volume 2. That's right. Uh, I mean, we'll introduce this in the episode itself, but briefly, this is, you know, antho- TV anthology episodes that are horror-themed. We take them, we use them as a springboard to talk about science. This was the second one uh, in this series, and we'll be sharing the third one in the series as a vault episode in the weeks ahead. And hey, might even get an all-new fourth volume. We'll see what we can put together. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Gooley Lamb. I am corrosive Joseph McCormick, and we are here with our producer, Death Nicholas Johnson. Yes, and it is that time again. Uh, it's It's been a year since we did Anthology of Horror, Volume 1, and so we're about to uh, uh, assault you with Anthology of Horror, Volume 2. And then guess what? The episode after this is going to be Anthology of Horror, Volume 3. It's not an anthology unless there are at least three volumes. Exactly. So, yeah, I've been looking forward to this uh, all year, pretty much. Robert, I know the back corners of your brain are just full of cobwebs made of old horror anthology TV episodes. Every time we get talking about this, you dredge something up from the void, something you saw on TV as a kid. Am I wrong about this? Yeah, pretty much, because yeah. when I was a kid, I watched a lot of television, and of, of the various joyfully weird things that were on television, uh, reruns or syndicated horror anthology shows were one of the best because you never knew exactly what you were going to get. Each Mm -hmm. episode, it's an anthology. So each episode of something like The Twilight Zone or Night Gallery or Outer Limits or Tales from the Crypt, each one is its own thing, its own world. It has its own cast, its own monster or thread or sci-fi weirdness, and it's completely encapsulated. I love especially, some of these are really good, actually. The Twilight Zone I think is even better than a lot of people remember. Oh, yes. And I think a lot of times it's because The Twilight Zone was not an hour-long show, or I think maybe it was in one of its later seasons, which turned out to be disastrous. I mean, you know, this is a tight 20-something minute short story. It's it's a good way not to get bogged down in stuff that doesn't matter with when you're not going into, like, in-depth character storytelling, but you're, like, exploring high-level premises. Yeah, you know, it's it's more it's more in line with, uh, with certainly some of the short short stories, you, you know, the classic short stories you think of as, say, like uh, Philip K. Dick, mm-hmm. where it's, it's really about rolling out a cool idea, maybe a, a cool twist or a shock, but mostly about, you know, to make you think about something. And uh, yeah, so I, I love a really great episode of an anthology show. Certainly, like you said, some of those Twilight Zones uh, hold up amazingly well. We're going to be talking about one of my favorites of all time today. Yeah. Uh, but then also some of the the worst examples. Uh, I, one show, and this is a show I didn't. I don't think I even watched when it came on. But perversions of science. Oh man! It was a sci-fi sort of spinoff of Tales from the Crypt, and uh, uh, I haven't watched Equally all the episodes. Sleazy, but very like future smooth. Yeah, yeah. Lots of cursing, some gratuitous nudity. But like a lot of these shows, often tremendous talent packed into each episode. It's like some great actors, uh-huh. uh, some great directors. Um, so you know, every horror anthology show, I feel like the ones that I've, I 
look back on fondly or the ones I haven't even seen yet. Uh, there's so many treasures to uncover. I watched so many of these things. It's very specifically on beach hotel cable. <laughs> this is what I remember. Yeah, it was like I watched Mystery Science Theater 3000 that way. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess basically when my family went to the beach, everybody else would be out in the sun and I'd be watching the Sci-Fi Channel. Yeah. Uh, but that's how you see reruns of Monsters. Mm, yes. Uh, which is a show that I had completely forgotten about until you uh, you sent me something about it the other day. And I was looking at the images from the opening credits and I was like, oh, my God, yes, that's way back in there. Somewhere deep in the recesses of my mind. This is there. I've seen it before. All right. Well, before we get more properly into, into Monsters, I just want to tell everybody like what the basic format here is. Uh, if you haven't heard one of our Anthology of Horror episodes before or the Creepypasta episodes that preceded it. Okay. The idea is uh, we're going to grab a few – in each episode, we're going to each grab one episode of a horror anthology show. We're going to tell you what it's about, remind you what it's about if you've seen it before. And then we're going to break down some of the ideas involved there, You know, some of the science uh, of the thing, uh, whatever it happens to, to be, even if we have to shoehorn it a little bit. And, uh, and that's where the fun is. Exactly. We are nothing if not experts at dragging deep thoughts out of uh, strangely shallow places. Yes. Uh, though, again, we're going to also go to some, I think, some rather deep waters in these Twilight Zone episodes. Well, that's true, okay. yeah. So let's begin with Monsters. Okay, this, uh, this ran for three seasons from 1988 through 1990. And I think I only caught it once at like my aunt's house back in the day. And I don't even know if it was in syndication or on the Sci-Fi Channel uh, after it had finished its run. Mm-hmm. Uh, but today you can find all of it on Amazon Prime. You can find a lot of the episodes, <laughs> maybe all of them just on YouTube. Uh, but but uh, yeah, it's a, like a lot of these shows, it's a wealth of talent and weirdness. I was wondering how many people were hoping that this show would have disappeared into history forever, only to have the digital age <laughs> revive all of these old <laughs> things that these actors did? Yeah, yeah, possibly. Possibly, yeah, because there, you, you see some, some interesting people show up in Monsters. For instance, uh, uh, you know, you have... Um, you have some great authors like Dan uh, Simons shows up. Uh, Tom Noonan shows up writing and directing wow. like a couple of episodes. Tony Shalhoub shows up. Uh, Gina Gershon. Steve Buscemi Whoa. in an excellent uh, pig monster related episode that wow. I won't spoil for anybody. Oh, man. We were just talking about pig monsters. Yeah. And this is a great pig monster episode. Okay. I got to dive in. Uh, but yeah, th- this show is kind of a spiritual successor to Tales from the Dark Side, which went 84 to 88, which I did see a lot of and was traumatized at times by as a child. Uh, and and the, the monsters featured many of the same people. And, and again, an incredible opening sequence like a lot of these anthology uh, shows had in which a humorous family of monsters settle in to watch TV together. I believe uh, right before they start watching their show, the mother monster shows up with a dish full of something she's been cooking and the child monster declares candied critters. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's cheesy. It's great. Uh, and then it... Uh, and then you proceed into some new story that's going to center around a monster. And uh, usually it's like really cool practical effects, too. So these episodes, they can be a little hokey, mm-hmm. intentionally so at times. The, the music is a little weird, this kind of synth music that I even have trouble loving uh, at times, like synthetic saxophone music. You've got a very open heart for synth. Yeah. Uh, but great cast, cool monster. And uh, the episode I'm going to talk about today is one titled Far Below. And the reason I was so excited, I didn't even know they'd covered this, but Far Below is one of my favorite short stories uh, by Robert uh, 
Barbour Johnson, who lived 1907 through 1987. Hmm. Uh, this is what like a Weird Tales era story that I read years and years ago, and I've just I've lived my entire life up until like this week, uh, having no idea that anybody had ever adapted it. Huh. So so I was instantly excited, and I and I said, all right, I've got to cover this. So it takes place in the deepest depths of the New York subway system, uh, one of my favorite places anyway. And uh, you have a you have a special segment of city services that wage an endless campaign against the ghouls that burrow up from the depths. It's a, it's a haunting tale that positions them as workers in a dark, inhuman place against an inhuman enemy, and they all run the risk of losing their own humanity in the process. So this season two adaptation of Far Below has a lot going for it. So not only do you have Johnson's short story as the, you know, the, the inspiration for it, it was adapted for the screen by Michael McDowell, the screenwriter who gave us Beetlejuice, The Nightmare Before Christmas, and perhaps to a lesser extent, Thinner. <laughs> Two out of three ain't bad. Yeah. Plus, it's directed by the legendary producer Deborah Hill. Whoa, Deborah Hill of like John Carpenter movie fame. Yeah, yeah. Longtime collab- collaborator and producer of John Carpenter's films such as Halloween, Halloween 2, The Fog, Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. Oh, yes. Escape from New York, Escape from L.A. Uh, she also produced Clue, The Dead Zone, The Fisher King, and Big Top Pee Wee. <laughs> So, uh, th- th- but this was one of the only two things she ever directed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was instantly, you know, intrigued. And then the, the cast is small but pretty fun in that veteran actor Barry Nelson plays his character Dr. Vernon Rathmore. Barry Nelson, was he in Planet of the Vampires? Ooh, he, he might have been. Maybe you can do a, a quick look up on that while I, I cover some of the other things he was in. Uh, you know, he's one of these character actors that was in everything. A lot of TV work back in the day. A few classic horror anthology shows as well, like Twilight Zone, Suspense, and the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. But I think most people will probably remember him from Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, in which he played Ullman uh, opposite Jack Nicholson in The Job Interview Scene. That's correct. That is, I was also mistaken. Planet of the Vampires has Barry Sullivan. Not. Okay, different Barry. There were a lot, it seemed like there were a lot of berries back in the day. Yeah. Um, so the, the adaptation itself is pretty fun. It introduces a new twist, and they opted to present the ghouls, which are not really referred to as such, if I remember correctly. Uh, they present them much more like the Morlocks from the 1960 adaptation of H.G. Wells' The Time Machine, hmm. which I think is a fine choice. You know, you need some sort of subterranean humanoid but inhuman creature. If you're not going to go for, like, what I imagine is the straight-up ghoul or perhaps sort of the dog-like uh, Lovecraftian ghoul, then I, I think— uh, a, a Morlock is a solid choice. Now, I want to know more about the, the ghouls in the story in the in the segment. Are, I mean, are they sort of the, the grave flesh-eating scavengers we, we know of as ghouls? Um, not so much. I mean, there's clearly an inspiration from um, Pigman's model, the, mm-hmm. the Lovecraft story, in which ghouls are bubbling out from the like the underworld mm-hmm. um, and uh, and potentially corrupting uh, mortal minds. Uh, like clearly, that was part of the inspiration. That's part of the world from which the story emerges. But in in the story itself and in the adaptation, it's more like these are creatures that are wandering up from the depths. Like mm-hmm. we've, it's kind of a Tolkien esque idea of we've dug too far into the earth and now these things are coming up and we have to stop them because 
because they're going to continue to pick off subway workers and uh, you know uh, vagrants and then eventually other people. And if we don't keep them in check, they will just overwhelm us. This is funny. I was just reading the two towers in the chapter where Gandalf explains what happens after oh, yes. he, you know after he plunged down after the Balrog. He says they went into the depths of the earth far below where any you know uh, thing that lives above is the abode of slimy things and things that cannot be named. Yes, and and indeed these are these are some of those nameless things. So on the subject of ghouls, we, of course, have an entire episode in the vault about the idea of ghouls. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've talked at length as well about life underground and the effects of human life underground. And so I don't want to retread on much of that content. It's, it's definitely there, and we love it. And if you want more uh, subterranean humans and ghouls, go check those episodes out. But I, I did find a line of inquiry on this that I think uh, is pretty solid. So we have an underground war in a great modern metropolis against an inhuman enemy that rises from the depths. And yet these Morlock-esque creatures are drawn up to feed on humans, the humans that have overpopulated this region. Hmm. Uh, They seem to feast on vagrants and subway workers and would feast on far more of the populace if not for the efforts of Dr. Rathmore. And his, uh, you know, basically the the premise is uh, auditors have come to check him out because his department is, seems to be way over funded, way overarmed, and the outsider is asking, why do you need all these weapons? Why do you need all this funding? And, and then the story is about presenting exactly why this funding is needed. But basically, in this fight, uh, the fictional characters of Far Below have much in common uh, with those who battle various organisms that we label pests in the real world. Mm. And the most obvious parallel is the rat. The true citizen of the subway tunnels. Exactly. I mean, when you go down there to take a train, they're not in your way or, you know, getting into your stuff. You're in their world. Yeah. You're just a guest. Yeah. Uh, now, t- to be sure, a single rat can be a problem even in a, you know, sort of a prehistoric, pre-city sense of human existence. Uh, and the same can be said of, say, mosquitoes. Uh, you know, they both can spread or help spread pathogens. Uh, the same can be said of something like the locust. Uh, but, but all these examples of or organisms as well, they can become an even greater problem when they are imbalanced by human activity. Mm. So let's, let's think about the rat. As biologist Ken Applin put it, quoted in The Case for Leaving City Rats Alone by Becca Cudmore for Nautilus, rats are disruption specialists. So they thrive in disrupted ecosystems. Mm. They spill into unbalanced realms and carve out a kingdom for themselves. And he points out that the very few wild animals have done this quite as well as the rats in the human world without undergoing domestication. That's an interesting point. Yeah. So we we think about uh, organisms that can successfully thrive at the edges of human civilization. You've, you've got two main versions. You've got those that become tame and, and eventually get bred by humans like mm-hmm. dogs or farm animals uh, or even cats, which right. are a little bit wilder versions. Wilder, but still definitely domesticated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then you've got the ones that are just sort of destroyed by our presence, which are, I'd say, maybe the majority of animals that, mm-hmm. like, when we change an ecosystem, they suffer. And then, yeah, you've got this third category, the ones we think of as unwelcome survivors in our environments. Yeah, because yeah, you've disrupted everything, but this is an organism that thrives on disruption. It mm-hmm. can go right in there and find a place for itself. You know, all a rat needs uh, is, a, is, a, is a place to burrow, 50 grams of calorie-rich or moderately calorie-rich food uh, per day, and some water to drink. Um, 
and they they're going to find that uh, they're going to find an abundance of that in our environments. I mean, in our garbage, in our in our uh, you know in our refuse, in, in the in, in the, the leavings of our civilization, and uh, for all of our domesticated minions, for all of our traps and our poisons, rats still rule cities like New York City. Mm-hmm. In previous episodes, I think we've even talked about rat societies in New York City. I yeah, mean, the, the, there are sort of separate subcultures of rats within the cities that uh, that they occupy. Yes, and that's gonna that's indeed going to become very important to uh, here in just a minute. Oh, okay. The rat was already perfectly evolved to do all of this. Uh, they were stealing from other organisms before us, most likely. Uh, we just continued to offer more and more to steal, creating waste, disruption, and hiding places everywhere we go. And of course, we went absolutely everywhere, bringing rats in our wake. Uh, Becca Cudmore's article, however, deals mostly with the Vancouver Rat Project, which points out that some experts uh, identify the potential dangers posed by fighting back against the rat occupation too hard. And part of it comes down to this to the disruption of these stable rat colonies, uh, these these stable areas, these uh, little little pocket civilizations that the rats have established in these disrupted ecosystems. Hmm. These are some of the key points uh, that have been made. First of all, drive rats out of one home or block and into another home or block, and you might be spreading rat pathogens that would otherwise be quarantined Hmm. within this stable group. Oh, yeah. Plus, urban rats have a garbage-based diet, meaning that they absorb a lot of bacteria. And this is often place-specific bacteria. It's tied to the building, to the people that live in that particular building. Mm -hmm. Drive them out, and you spread these particular um, bacteria elsewhere. Mm. You're stirring the pot, right? And then rats in one area will wage bloody war against any stranger rat that arrives. This applies to New York City as well, where uh, I've read, and I think we've talked about this before, about how a native rat population tends to do a decent job of fighting off rat invasions that come in on ships, etc. So it's a perpetual turf war. But these turf wars, especially when you stir them up by fighting back against the rats too hard, potentially, uh, those turf wars spill rat blood. They cause rats to urinate out of fear. And so what we get is a mix of rat blood and rat urine and rat gut contents, a real (laughs) witch's brew. Uh In fact, uh, Kaylee Byers of the Vancouver the rat project points out that these brawls allow bacteria to converge, to mix, and potentially create new diseases. Bacteria that wouldn't otherwise interact with each other are pooled together, uh, swap genes, and form new diseases such as uh, uh, methicillin-resistant uh, staph, or MRSA. Oh, wow. I didn't even think about that as a consequence of another thing we've talked about before. Of course, horizontal gene transfer between single-celled organisms like bacteria. You know, if one acquires a useful adaptation and, say, resisting a certain antibiotic, they can share that gene for that adaptation via a a sort of analogy of bacterial sex. It's not sexual reproduction, but uh, they they can take part of their genome and just put it in another bacterium. Yeah, yeah. So we have a situation where we disrupted the environment, organism that thrives on disruption has moved in. And then if we attempt to remove that organism, we bring more disruption into the scenario. We bring more more chaos. Uh, so the idea of, of, of fixing these problems, it becomes more of a a hard problem uh, of dealing with these rat infestations. Uh, so anyway, not, not to say that we shouldn't fight against rats and keep them from living too high on the hog, but we got here through disruption, so we shouldn't be surprised if there are consequences for disrupting it further. 
Totally. And if you're going to fight a secret war against the ghouls, well, then perhaps it's worth fighting, uh, you know, at a perpetual stalemate. Right. Why turn a cold war into a hot war? Exactly. All right. I'm going to have more about the war against rats and potentially ghouls here in a second. But first, uh, let's take an ad break here. All right. All right, we're back to City Rats, the ghouls of the real world. Yeah, and comparing it to that episode of Monsters Far Below, uh, based on a, a beloved uh, ghoul short story. Uh, so uh, here's another thing to think about here. Uh, I mean, we've talked about how rats spread with human civilization, mm-hmm. and they're, so they're such a highly successful organism. And yet there are a few areas of the world that have remained essentially rat-free, the most notable of which is the Canadian province of Alberta. Hmm. Uh, it's virtually free of the Norway rat. Uh, now, wild rats do turn up from time to time, brought in through traditional means. You know, they come in, uh, you know, on a shipment or, uh, or so forth. Uh, but uh, the province has been very proactive in squashing these flare-ups to hold on to that rat-free championship that they've uh, that they've earned. You know, I have been to Alberta. Actually, I've yeah. been to uh, the city of Calgary and, and driven around in there, and uh, I never noticed roving teams of anti-rat sorcerers, <laughs> rat exorcists of any kind. Uh, so, so what? What's the secret? Yeah, so that's like everybody's next question. How did they get rat free? What they do? What can I do to get that in my city? Well, basically, they were just able to keep the rats out before they moved in, mm. which I think lines up rather nicely with the story of Far Below, the idea of keep the ghouls from boiling up into New York City. Right. Because like, once they're up, there's no getting rid of them. Yeah, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Yeah. So basically, this is how it went, went down. The Norway rat arrived in North America in roughly seven 1775. Key port cities never had a chance. Uh, But from there, they gradually spread across the continent. And uh, that took time for certain areas. The rats didn't enter eastern Saskatchewan until the 1920s. And according to Alberta's official website on their history of rat control, uh, the rats continued to spread northwest at a rate of 15 miles or 24 kilometers per year. So they first reached the eastern border of Alberta in 1950. Whoa. And that's where they stopped them with rat control measures, keeping the province and its cities free of the furry invaders. And uh, and that also includes its largest city, Calgary. Mm -hmm. Uh, Basically, they realized the threat to all levels of human activities, especially agriculture, you know, which there was a lot of, uh, which is why the Department of Agriculture did a lot of the heavy lifting, especially early on. Mm-hmm. But legislation also mandated control of pests by, quote, every person in every level of government. <laughs> what? Yeah. So like uh, county clerks or? Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, essentially, like they basically they spread the message to absolutely everyone. And then every uh-huh. municipality had to have a pest control inspector, a control zone was established, and and this is good. Uh, far below hinges in part on the idea that a bureaucratic outsider, uh, you know, like most of the world, has no idea about the ghoul threat. The whole tale is his education into the reality of the struggle against the ghouls. Mm-hmm. And Alberta's efforts actually mirrored this in some to some degree. They they had to they sought to enlist the population against the rat threat. You know, to build up you know the, the, the public awareness. So they had to educate the public about rats. Most 
people in Alberta had never seen a rat before. That's hard to imagine. Yeah. So Alberta's uh, so Alberta agriculture educators traveled around with preserved rat specimens to inform the public. There's a fabulous uh, photo, color <laughs> photograph that uh, the Alberta's website includes of these educators uh, on a farm in Alberta with a bunch of preserved rats, not in a container, just laid out on the grass. There's a child holding one up by the tail. And they're just saying, like, these are rats. This is what you need to be vigilant about. This is what you need to look out for. It's like teaching New Zealanders about squirrels. Yeah, I guess so. Um, anyway, what better way than the, the physical thing itself? But on top of that, there were conferences. There were posters. There were pamphlets. Uh, you know, some of these, like, straight-up propaganda uh, posters about the, the, the terror of the rat. They advocated the use of poisons to fight back, uh, though they also had to bring in outside experts to help them. Because, again, most Alberta residents had no experience with rats, and that includes experience fighting them. Uh, so they were able to battle the rat infestations along the eastern border and keep them mostly within 10 to 20 kilometers of the border. And the, the program continues today in an altered but still effective form. It's actually illegal to own a pet rat in the province. Whoa. You've got to be a zoo, a university, or a recognized research institution. Uh, there's also a rat hotline uh, where you report rat in, uh, flare-ups in case, you know, they, they move for when they do occur. But one of the problems is that, again, most Alberta residents don't have a good eye for rats. Yeah, hello, an extremely tiny dog just ran across my kitchen floor. <laughs> well, what happens is they end up reporting muskrats, gophers, ground squirrels, and other similar organisms. And then, you know, the rat police come out to check, and they're like, oh, those are not rats. Those are muskrats. Uh, you know, we can't really do anything about that. Uh, by the way, to come back to Monsters, the anthology uh, series, if, if you're wondering if there is an episode of Monsters that expressly concerns rats, mm -hmm. uh, there is. There's one called Stressed Environment in which a female scientist who spent 12 years raising rats in a stressed environment uh, you know, in the hopes of evolving their intelligence faces the, the terrifying results of her experiment. It stars Carol Lindley, and it has stop-motion rats that end up using spears against their human captors. Smart rats. Indeed. So this whole thing from far below about this team of bureaucratic professionals who mm -hmm. work for the city who have to go underground to fight the uh, the menace coming up from below. Of course, in the story, it's ghouls. You've got the analogy to rats, but I can't help but think of the fatbergs. Oh, yeah. The people up above are completely oblivious to the fact that there are workers down beneath the streets, in the tunnels, in the darkness, waging battle against a, a monster that lives down there. And of course, the agglomerations of fats, oils, grease, and wet wipes and and various fibrous substances that clog up kilometers of sewers, especially in places like England and, or I guess the UK more broadly, but also in US cities. It seems like another perfect analogy for the, the, the wars being waged on our behalf below our feet that we don't even think about. Yeah, you create this vast, unnatural underworld, mm -hmm. and it's going to it's, it's going to end up potentially being populated by uh, by opportunistic organisms, or uh, you know there are going to be situations where uh, things like fatbergs emerge and you need people to go wage war against them. If you want to learn more about fatbergs, we have a whole episode about them from earlier this year that you can check out. 
So that was Monsters. Uh, Monsters, I think, falls more in the you know the category of fun, but often kind of a little bit cheesy uh, when it comes to horror anthology shows. But again, some of the like one of the big names, uh, one of the, the classier names in horror anthology is of course the classic Twilight Zone. Right. Uh, and so there there are so many great episodes of the Twilight Zone that really do pose interesting questions that still remain interesting today. I mean, there are some that also <laughs> have kind of hokey premises that don't hold up. But mm-hmm. I want to talk about one that I really think does hold up and is still more and more mind-blowing the more you think about it. And yet at the same time, has an incredibly simple premise. Uh, I, I feel like this is a great example of, of a story premise getting a lot of bang for its buck. And so this is one of my favorite episodes of The Twilight Zone, originally aired in 1959, and it's called Shadow Play. So in the beginning of this episode of The Twilight Zone, a man named Adam Grant is awaiting the verdict after being put on trial for murder. The jurors return from deliberation and they proclaim him guilty. And then the judge sentences him to death by the electric chair. But as he's being sentenced, Grant begins to laugh hysterically. And in a fit of rage and frustration, he runs around the courtroom yelling at people, not again, you can't do it to me again, you'll all die. Uh, So in his jail cell, Grant starts talking with his roommates about how this has all happened to him before. The trial, the sentencing, the imprisonment, and the execution have all happened to him a thousand times, but not as reality, always as a nightmare. Grant says he's in a dream right now, and at the moment of his electrocution, he's going to wake up screaming back in reality. And because it's always been a dream in the past, this time it must be a dream too. So he tells everybody he can, don't let them send me to the chair because when I die, I'll wake up. And when I wake up, you'll all die because I'll stop dreaming you. Then there's this newspaper reporter who was present at Grant's trial. And he starts to become a little worried that he is, in fact, maybe only being dreamed by Grant. And if Grant wakes up, he and everybody else in the world will cease to exist. So he gets drunk and he goes to the house of his friend, who's the district attorney, who was in the courtroom also, who who, uh, presented the case against Grant. And the newspaper reporter begins to beg the district attorney to stay the execution. And the DA, of course, thinks this is preposterous, obviously. But the more his friend talks to him about it, the more doubts begin to creep in, however much he tries to resist them. Doesn't the world ever feel just not quite real? Isn't it sometimes just too perfect or just too full of too many coincidences? I think most people can actually identify with having this feeling every now and then about their own lives. Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially we've talked before about uh, some, some about coincidence, you know, yeah. and how we've we devoted a whole episode to it, I believe, and and how we can overinterpret that, or at least that there's some vast conspiracy afoot. Well, I mean, this is what led like Carl Jung to believe in this concept of synchronicity that there could be that there was a, a connecting principle in reality that was not based on physical causation, uh, but was based on like uh, based on meaning, essentially that events could be not caused by one another 
other but connected to one another through meaning and this is why we have this feeling that there are too many coincidences mm-hmm. in our lives. Uh, but anyway, so after this moment, uh, the district attorney agrees to go speak to Grant in the prison before the execution takes place. Uh, Grant expects him before he arrives and the DA tries to interrogate Grant on his theory. He tries to convince him that it couldn't be true. It's not possible that you are dreaming all this and we're just in your dream. The DA says, like, what, you mean to tell me that my family, my friends, everybody in this city, in this state, everybody in the world is just living inside your dream? And Grant says, a dream builds its own world. And the DA asks, well, how can I be a part of your dream if I sleep and dream myself every night? And then Grant says in this great line, you only sleep and dream because I dream you that way. (laughs) So Grant is then headed to the electric chair at midnight, and the DA is faced with this choice. Should he call the governor to get a stay of execution? But that would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? But he has doubts. Uh, I'm not going to spoil the ending beyond that. But I will say my favorite part of this episode, aside from uh, the great performance by Dennis Weaver as Adam Grant, is is in the middle part of the episode. It's the part where the doubts begin to set in for the reporter and the DA and the other prisoners on Grant's row. I, I feel like this story at once uh, raises several of the deepest, most challenging questions at the core of metaphysics, psychology, and the philosophy of mind. Questions like, how do you know for sure that other people in the outside world are real? And how do you know your current experience is real as opposed to a dream? How do you know you're not dreaming right now? And then I think that the most mind-blowing question from it, of course, is that if you're one of these other people in the story, like the DA or the reporter, how do you know that you're real? Could you, in fact, be an imaginary person in somebody else's dream? And of course, with that last question, you may think the answer is just obviously self-evidently no. I think it's probably no, but it might not be as cut and dry as we might hope. I want to come back to that in a minute. Yeah, th- th- I watched this episode this morning, and uh, yeah, it's it's really good. It's it's one of the, again, all, a lot of these Twilight Zone episodes, they, they hold up so well. They're shot in like stunning black and white. Uh, these, uh, you know, I guess at times the acting might feel a little dated to what you might have today, but it's, it's all really solid. Also, this episode was uh, adapted in the 19 19- 85 revival of the Twilight Zone starring Peter Coyote uh, in the lead <laughs> I haven't role. seen that. Yeah, I, I haven't either, but um, but I, I looked it up and I was like, oh yeah, there's Peter Coyote. Huh. And uh, then, of course, this episode was written by Charles Beaumont, who is one of like the legendary names of uh, the Twilight Zone. Mm-hmm. He wrote yeah. a number of, of killer episodes. Yeah, it's really, really good. Uh, it, it's a really tight, well-told story, um, and, and I highly recommend it. And in fact, I was just, I was watching it on Netflix, so Twilight Zone's all on Netflix right mm-hmm. now, so you can go look it up if you got a subscription. And I, it's also on Hulu, I believe, if anyone wishes to, to watch them there. But oh, yeah, yeah. there's tons of Twilight Zone awaiting you. I always forget just how many episodes of the show they did. Uh-huh. I think there's like 36 episodes in the first season. Uh-huh. And not all of them are great, but a striking number of them are great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, maybe we should take a quick break, and when we come back, we can address these questions about dreams and being. All right, we awaken you from the dream of advertising and back into the reality of our episode. All right, so I think we should deal with some of the questions I was just posing that are raised by this episode of The Twilight Zone. Uh, And and the first one I think would be the most basic question. How do you know that your entire life hasn't been a dream? How do you know that the people you interact with aren't just figments of your imagination? 
Uh, I think we all assume that other people are real and independent, or at least you probably should assume that mm -hmm. uh, the outside world really exists. Will it will continue after I die, and so forth? But it's harder than you might expect to prove this with certainty. Uh, though I think almost nobody actually holds this view. If you actually were to believe that your mind is the only thing that exists, and the rest of the outside world and all the people of it are they're just merely products of your imagination or your dream or whatever, this is known as solipsis. And to be more specific, I think it would be metaphysical solipsism. Metaphysical meaning this is how the world is as opposed to something like methodological solipsism, which you might say is one of the tools of, say, Descartes, who I'll talk about in a minute, uh, which would just mean like solipsism might be a useful philosophical tool for a moment. And by the way, listeners who are fans of the excellent sitcom The Good Place will recognize this as one of the philosophies that is uh, currently being explored in season three. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I haven't gotten there yet. I think I only did season one. Does it stay good? Oh, yeah. It it, it just gets better. Uh, yeah. they, they do a really good job of mixing it up and uh, defying expectations. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I, I do want to stress, I think solipsism is one of those points of view that uh, especially can be frustrating to normal people because you can point out that it's really hard to disprove and that can create the false impression that like some philosophers actually believe this. I don't think any philosophers actually believe in solipsism. But it's one of those weird edge cases, right? Everybody just sort of accepts that you have to leap over it with an axiomatic assumption. I can't prove it. I'll just assume the outside world is real and other people are conscious. Right, because if you, if you, if you were to believe this, like things get pointless or silly or dangerous really quickly, right? Yeah, of course. I mean, it's not a disproof, but there's a funny implication of instability that follows from the assumption of metaphysical solipsism. Uh, and it would go like this. If you're actually a metaphysical solipsist. You believe nothing in, that you experience is real. None of the other people actually exist. Uh, they're just figments of your imagination or something like that. What would be the point of telling anybody about it? Yeah. Just like for your own amusement? Like would any of the imaginary people you interact with benefit from you explaining why you think that solipsism is true? Now, for me, I guess the two reasons to tell people come to mind, though, though, though neither is really grounded in the reality of living within a dream. Uh, on one hand, you know, what better way to dismiss the stressors in your life than to tell them they're but figments of your imagination, right? <laughs> to go just full Scrooge on them. Uh, but you'd also have to tell that to all the people you like and love. And, and that, though, is actually more attractive than one might think. I mean, uh, this is essentially the, an exercise of detachment. Uh, Buddhist and Hindu teachings speak to the importance of freeing ourselves from the chains of attachment, both chains of iron, mm -hmm. you know, chains to, to things that are less desirable, but also chains of gold, uh, you know, the, the chains to the, the things in life that we love or, or, or give us, uh, you know, stability and peace. We have to free ourselves from our hates and our loves and connect with the true underlying reality of Brahman. And, uh, and, and so, you know, that feels a little uh, on par with what we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. Though I think some of the incarnations of this philosophy as realized in like Hinduism, I think especially, I, I recall them being even more radical than solipsism actually, and saying not only is the uh, not only is all of the sense data of the outside world uh, potentially an illusion, but also the self is potentially an illusion. Yeah. So it's not it's not that I am the only thing that exists, but maybe even I don't exist. Yeah, and uh, I think we're going to get into even more of this as yeah. we continue. Uh, but then again, since almost nobody who thinks about it seriously is tempted to believe in solipsism, I think we. Can just like use the axiomatic pole vault and jump over the question. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess we don't even really follow into full-blown solipsism uh, via social media, in which we all have, like, you know, we, we have a, a, a carefully maintained version of ourselves, an unreal version of ourselves that interacts with unreal versions of other people. Uh-huh. Like, it's just a bunch of masks. And uh, I think if anything were going to lead us to, like, just full-blown solipsism, it would be that. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, there's an, there are plenty of ways the word solipsism is used that aren't exactly the same. I mean, I think one thing you're getting on there is like people often do behave very solipsistically on uh, on social media, but that's more in the sense of not necessarily not believing that other minds exist or that the outside world exists, but just acting as if you only care about yourself. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's it's beyond that. It's not just I'm the only one that matters. Or that everybody's a, everybody else only matters insofar as their attention to me. Mm-hmm. It's that they are not real. They are all figments of my mind. They are all but a dream. All right. So we're going to jump over this question. If somebody actually holds metaphysical solipsism, I can't disprove them. I'm just going to push them in a ditch. You know? <laughs> um, so we go on to the next thing, which is maybe a more vexing problem, which is the problem of Cartesian skepticism. How do you know that your experience right now in this very moment is real and not a dream? In Shadowplay, Grant repeatedly explores this question. He's looking for clues in the opposite direction, trying to notice details about his environment that would tell him he's in a dream. He'll point out, hey, this thing doesn't make sense. That must mean I'm in a dream. They wouldn't put that right there. They wouldn't let you have this in there. They wouldn't, you know, this wouldn't be scheduled in this way. Why am I, why am I getting executed the same day I got sentenced? That doesn't make any sense. Mm. I must be in a dream. Why are steaks being cooked in the oven? That sort of thing. (laughs) That's a good one. No, I think that's just the 1950s. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But yeah, woof. 1950s uh, culinary culture in America might be a largely bad dream. Uh, So uh, the 17th century French philosopher, scientist, mathematician René Descartes, of course, was famously concerned with this question in a lot of his philosophical works, such as his meditations on first philosophy, uh, having doubts about philosophy that gave primacy to the evidence of our senses. So like if I assume as a starting point that I'm sitting in a chair in a studio talking into a microphone, I could turn out to be completely wrong because – I already know there have been thousands of times in my life when I was 100% convinced that I was really physically in my elementary school lunch line next to Foghorn Leghorn or on a boat headed to Greenland wearing a, uh, I don't know, Superman cape or something, only to wake up and realize that I was actually asleep in my bed dreaming. And I was totally convinced in the moment. Yeah, I mean, granted, it's, it's, it's a reduced version of us to a certain extent. Like we, there are things that we're not picking up on that we would otherwise pick up on a lot of the times. But within the context of the dream, we buy it as our reality. Well, yeah, th- that's one of the things. So you, you say that, and I agree with you. There is a textural difference to dreams. Uh, dreams, uh, you know, our, our waking reality doesn't feel like a dream, right? Dreams are hazy and ethereal and, and, and absurd in ways that we don't notice in the moment. And my surroundings right now feel very lucid and solid, right? Mm-hmm. It feels like there is a qualitative difference. Right. Right. 
of course, until we start really looking at how we observe the world, right? Uh, exactly, yes. There does seem to be a qualitative difference, but maybe dreams only seem hazy and ethereal in comparison in retrospect. Because in the moment, doesn't a dream often feel exactly as solid and lucid as real life? I've actually had a number of dreams, I recall, that almost became a lucid dream. And the sequence goes pretty much like this every time. In the dream, I think, wait a second, I'm dreaming, aren't I? And then I look around and I test my surroundings. Doesn't this seem like a dream? Doesn't anything seem out of place? Can I fly? That kind of thing. And whenever this happens, I conclude, oh, no, everything around me is normal. I can't fly. Totally real and lucid. This must be real and not a dream. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. Mine is similar, but what happens with me is I'll I'll realize it's a dream and I'll be like, this is annoying. And generally it's an annoying dream. It's something that's, it's not a full-blown nightmare, but it's like, it's annoying. I realize it's a dream and then I just fall back into it anyway. (laughs) Like, (laughs) like as if it's just, uh, I don't know. And that in itself is frustrating. It's like I, I woke from the dream I could have. Why didn't I go lucid at that point? No, mm-hmm. instead I just kind of shrugged and went right back into the, the same old crap. Well, this is one of the things that uh, that studies of dreams have found is that uh, our critical reasoning abilities are extremely limited in dreams. Dreams suppress certain kinds of brain function, especially the types of brain function that cause us to question our surroundings and think critically about sense data. Which, of course, inherently makes us very prone to thinking dreams are reality even – I don't know. I mean it's hard to know how real they really seem in the moment except for the fact that we feel like they are real. Right. Well, like like one bit of sort of folk wisdom that's often thrown around is like, oh, well, letters are backwards in dreams or you can't read text in dreams or, you know, something like that. I don't think that's true. I don't think so either. But I have had situations where I've been reading something in a dream and it's difficult. Mm -hmm. But my experience of that that is like, this is difficult to read. I must be dreaming. It's more, this is difficult to read. What's wrong? You know, I, I don't think about it, about the dream answer being the solution. Right. And so this whole dream problem is one way of getting to the position sometimes known as Cartesian skepticism named after Descartes uh, and also affecting our our mailbot Carney. Uh, <laughs> Since dreams and also hallucinations, such as the kind generated by uh, this figure Descartes imagines, this evil demon who wants to deceive him with false visions of the world, since they demonstrate that it's possible for us to be totally convinced of perceptions about the outside world while also being 100 percent wrong, uh, Descartes thinks, you know, we should doubt all of our perceptions unless we justify them in a logically airtight way. And, of course, Descartes' ultimate justification for the evidence of his, of his senses invokes a benevolent God who wouldn't trick him. Right. But is there any non-theological way to get around this, any tells or tests to separate dreaming life from waking life? There have been philosophers who have looked into this and tried to come up with, here's how you tell the difference. The English philosopher John Locke thought he had one. He had one that was pain, right? Locke said, you can't feel pain in a dream like you can in waking life. Uh, And that's your easy way to tell the difference, right? So maybe if you think you're in a dream, uh, I don't know, uh, poke your finger with a needle and see if it actually hurts. And if it does, you're awake. And if it doesn't, you're in a dream. Uh, But 20th century psychology research has found this is not true. Uh, So this is is where we get the whole pinch me. Uh, situation? Oh, yeah. I think it may uh very well be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, pinch me, see if I'm dreaming. 
I think this would not actually, uh, due to the research, though, I think this would not actually be a foolproof test because people do, in fact, sometimes report the impression that they have felt pain in dreams. Just one example is a 1993 study in the journal Sleep by Nielsen et al. Uh, and to read a couple of quotes from them, uh, uh, quote, some studies indicate that pain is rare and it may be beyond the representational capability of dreaming. However, the present study describes experiences of dreamed pain that were reported in Incidentally, in experiments on the effects of somatosensory stimulation administered during rapid eye movement sleep. The results indicate that although pain is rare in dreams, it is nevertheless compatible with the representational code of dreaming. Ah, advantage, Freddy Krueger. Right. And this actually comes out, uh, comes through in Shadow Play, right? There's a part where, uh, where Grant talks about going to the electric chair and how he doesn't want to be sent there to die again. Mm-hmm. And somebody's arguing with him. They say, if you're just dreaming, you won't feel feel it. But he says, no, wait. I mean, when you dream something bad, doesn't it doesn't it terrify you? Doesn't it hurt when it happens in the dream? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm struggling to think of examples from my own remembered dreams in which I experienced physical pain. But uh, but it, yeah, it sounds completely plausible. I'd be interested to hear from any listeners who have had dreams in which they have felt pain. Yeah, they also acknowledge that it might not be very common, but it does appear to happen. So I think it looks like the scientific research disproved Locke here. Now, there was another test I came across, and it was that the American philosopher Norman Malcolm wrote a couple of influential works about dreaming in the 1950s, in which he argued that dreams could be put to the test of, quote, a principle of coherence. So the idea is, do the events of your present circumstances connect logically with the preceding events in the rest of your life? So if you you are currently having a sword fight with Christophe Lambert. Why are you having that sword fight? How did you get there? Does the sequence of events make sense to you? Uh, and this is kind of similar to the test used in the movie Inception when you ask, how did I get here, right? Oh, yeah. The characters do that there to see if they're dreaming. If you find you can't recall how you got where you are, this allows you to realize that the present moment does not connect coherently with the rest of your past, and thus you're probably dreaming. But then again, I'm not sure this is a foolproof test. It might be a sort of helpful test, but it doesn't get you to the right answer all the time. We know that the dreaming mind state, again, as we were saying earlier, greatly reduces critical reasoning capacities. And it often seems to short-circuit logical inquiries with false answers, right? So you might ask a question that would be a good question if you could really think it through to get to the bottom of whether you're dreaming or not. But in your dreaming state, you don't think it through very well. Right. You don't don't have full control of your critical thinking, so a self-reflective question like that might not be helpful. Right. So as far as I can tell, no one has introduced an airtight test to tell the difference between a dream and reality. Waking life, of course, seems real enough. It doesn't feel the way dreams feel in retrospect in our memories of them, but that still doesn't help us achieve certainty in the moment. And then this here gets us to one final thing, which I think is the weirdest place uh, we might go about dreams. This is the crazy part of shadow play. Grant tells people around him that if he's sent to the electric chair, he's going to wake up from his nightmare. And if he wakes up, everybody in the world will die because this entire world is nothing more than his dream. 
and this is my, my favorite part of the episode. Uh, so on one hand, you might think, well, what would it matter? You know, the people that you imagine in your dream are not conscious. Of course, there are many different ways to fear death. But one common neurosis here is the anxiety of being snuffed out, right, of no longer existing, of there being a permanent end to your conscious experience. And if the people in Grant's dream are not conscious, there's nothing for them to be afraid of, no experience to exist in the first place, and thus nothing to come to an end. But in the story, they do seem afraid. The ones who start to doubt their reality, they don't want to be snuffed out. And the story seems to imply that they actually do have minds, that they want to live on. They don't want to be blinked out of existence by alterations in Grant's brain activity. And this is also the only part of the story that's actually fantastical because otherwise the story isn't even fantasy or science fiction. Like it's just perfectly plausible, right, that a man has the same nightmare right. over and over. Uh, and I want to take this idea seriously for just a moment. Could you, the conscious entity with a mind, the person you are now, actually be a person in someone else's dream? This bears some similarities to the simulation argument that we've discussed on the show in the past. Yeah, yeah, the idea that uh, that the reality we're experiencing now is a simulation uh, created by a far future society that's currently just really excited about the idea of the 20th and the 21st century. Right. Um, and we really want to simulate 2019 again. Oh, thank God for that. Well, look, I mean, look <laughs> at our, our cycles of nostalgia, right? Uh -huh. I mean, you know, look at some of our video games simulated worlds that we get into we going back to you know like an old west setting or a you know hard boiled detective world mm -hmm. or, or the 1980s etc so uh, it's it's not impossible but but just as grant argues that the perfection of one's life uh, is an argument for simulation like this is too perfect it's, mm -hmm. it's too, you know there's something wrong here uh, i believe there was a character in one of ian m banks culture novels who observed that the world is just too full of viciousness to be a simulation that this must be the base reality because who would dream it up otherwise now i suppose that's kind of interesting uh, to to think though that you know these are the thoughts attributed to a character within a fictional sci-fi novel right uh, but still i think it's an interesting point like but then again like what kind of frame of reference do we have if we have no memory uh, or no understanding of the world outside of the simulation. Right. But I mean, thinking about one way to think about the idea of being a simulation in a computer program is that you are being dreamed by the computer. Mm. Uh, now, one hurdle to the simulation argument has always been, is it possible for a computer to generate and host conscious minds? We don't know it's impossible. It's often assumed to be possible, but we just don't really know. The only thing we can be relatively certain works to generate and host consciousness is a brain. We know for sure they can do that. Yeah, because your brain is doing it right now. Right. But here's where, in some respects, the possibility of living in someone else's dream becomes more plausible, maybe, than living in a computer simulation. We know a brain can generate at least one conscious mind. Who says it can't generate more than one? Ah. There have been a number of experiments, in fact, and observations in neuroscience, too, especially throughout the 20th century, that have led some experts to believe it might be possible to have at least two distinct conscious minds occupying the same brain. One big example, of, of course, is something we've covered on the show in the past. Uh, we did, I think, a two-part episode about it that you can look up, and it's the split brain experiments. These were uh, originally experiments done by Roger Sperry and Michael Gazzaniga in the middle of the 20th century, and they dealt with 
epilepsy patients, uh, people who uh, suffered really intense seizures and no other treatment worked. And so the treatment that they eventually went in for was known as a total corpus callosotomy, a severing of the corpus callosum, which is a bundle of nerve fiber that connects the two hemispheres of the brain. And uh, the the procedure apparently worked pretty well. When you sever that uh, the corpus callosum, it does help to stave off these these horrible seizures. But there were a lot of interesting side effects that made the people who underwent this procedure very valuable to neuroscience research. For example, uh, to give a very short version, you could show in some experiments that. The part of the brain that talks, which appears to be primarily in most people the left hemisphere of the brain, which is capable of speech, could not explain what the right hemisphere was doing. Mm. So if you show an image to only the, the part of the visual field that connects to the right hemisphere of the brain and controls only one of the hands, the hand controlled mostly by that hemisphere of the brain could do things like select an object that was associated with the image displayed in that part of the visual field. But then the person talking – and again, speech is thought to be mostly generated by the left hemisphere, couldn't explain in a logical way why that object was chosen. And that and many experiments like it led some researchers to an obvious question. Is it possible that both hemispheres in split-brain patients are conscious but separately conscious within the same skull? In some sense, could there be two conscious minds within one brain? Yeah, it's one of the. Like, this is a total like real life Twilight Zone scenario yeah. that, that we've we've thought about before on the show. Like maybe by virtue of once being one, like they're still like each one still thinks they are the one, uh-huh. but they are two. Yeah, well, and another thing that would be very creepy is again because of the localization of speech function in the brain. Maybe only one of these can really talk to the outside world and the other one just can't really t- – it can still act with the body but it can't generate complex sentences or anything, which would be an obvious asymmetry in which one of the conscious minds within the brain gets represented to the outside world. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, one of them has no mouth and cannot scream. No, I definitely want to acknowledge that I, I think our picture of this has been somewhat complicated by more recent research. I think we do talk about this in our split brain episodes if you want to go re- revisit those and, and see more detail. Uh, but our, our picture on how information might or might not be shared between brain, brain hemispheres, even in the cases of a full uh, corpus callosotomy, seems to have been complicated by recent studies. I remember there was one we talked about by a researcher named I think uh, Yair Pinto who uh, did research undercutting the idea that there could be two conscious minds within the same brain. Um, I feel like this is an issue that, that's not fully settled and is still full of like weird mysteries. Uh, we don't know exactly what's going on. Another example from neuroscience uh, case history that has been taken as possible evidence that there could be multiple conscious minds within the same brain is the, uh, the idea of alien hand syndrome where you know hands may interfere with one another's behaviors as if they're guided by different wills. Mm. 
So one hand tries to button up a shirt. The other hand tries to unbutton the shirt. Right. Now, I want to stress that there is by no means proof or even necessarily strong evidence that there are multiple consciousnesses within the same brain because, again, you can't know for sure that there's consciousness anywhere unless somebody tells you that they have consciousness, right? I mean, right. that's the inherent problem re- uh, leading back to the solipsism issue to begin with, right? But, but then again, I also have to, to throw in, you know, we, we have to be careful about the idea of thinking about like the unity of, of self and the yes, consciousness. Yes, 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 Is it, is it, I think the more you look at it, this idea that there is one central unchanging you in there right. uh, is a fallacy and one that we, we still uh, have a lot of trouble with when it seems like the more reasonable explanation is that first of all, you, you're an entity of perpetual change, but also there is kind of a chorus of, uh, of, of, of yourself in there. Yeah, and one interpretation that, that brings together a lot of this neuroscience is the interpreter theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, the interpretation is the interpretive theory. <laughs> the interpreter theory of Michael Gazzaniga, uh, one of the researchers involved in, in these split brain experiments, uh, where he's got this idea that there's sort of a region of your brain that's associated with the speech production parts of your brain that is there to unify brain phenomena, you know, that are disparate in the beginning and it sort of its job is to tell one unified, coherent story to you about what's happening throughout your right. brain. So it takes all these disparate plot threads and says, here's how I'll finish up the story. Uh, and then, and that creates the sense of you. Your sense of self is generated by this sort of like a concatenation process in the interpreter part of the brain. But uh, to come back to the idea of multiple consciousnesses in the same head and maybe the idea of being someone else's dream, I, I've had this idea before. Again, this is not something that I would argue is strongly indicated by evidence, just a very strange possibility that seems hard to rule out on the basis of any evidence I'm aware of. What if the process of imagining the workings of other minds involves the low-resolution simulation of separate conscious minds? Mm. What if when you're trying to understand somebody else's behavior, you're trying to understand, you know, why did Jeff say what he said? And so you imagine his thought processes. Or when you're trying to write dialogue for a fictional character, what if in cases like this, you're practicing theory of mind, the brain temporarily carves out a bit of its consciousness potential to devote to this imagined person in order to better simulate their behavior. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in many cases, it would, especially if it's a perceived enemy, right? right. Uh, it's probably going to be a, a rather simple model. You know, it's you're, you're reducing them to like, uh, you know, cartoon villain levels of, of impulse and desire. Mm-hmm. But I mean, there's no limiting it just to enemies. I mean, in, in any case, whenever you try to imagine somebody, you don't know exactly everything your brain is doing to create that simulation of them within you. Right, like even the people we know the the best in our lives, say for instance, for instance, our um, uh, you know our, our you know uh, you know uh, life partners, mm-hmm. you know, or you know loved ones, family members, really close friends, we might have a more robust simulation of them right. uh, in our theory, via our theory of mind, but it is still just a model of how their mind works and what they want and how they think. Yeah, it's our best guess. It's our, I mean, it's not their brain. It's our brain trying to do it. And if this were the case, you could be in some sense 
creating separate conscious people in your head. Whenever you try to analyze a friend's behavior or write a scene for a character in a story or dream about a district attorney sitting across from you in a prison cell. Now, you might say, well, if they're all generated by your brain, they're all you. I mean, anatomically, they are all you. They're yeah. all made by your body. Oh, man, the other uh, side of this, too, is like when you read a novel. Yeah, exactly. I mean, in, anytime you imagine a person, I, I wonder if this is possible. If there's any validity to some of these alternative theories of dual consciousness, for example, you know, uh, Michael Gazzaniga's left brain interpreter theory, perhaps the part of your brain that talks and interprets and seems to be in charge and makes meaning of the self is not aware that the same brain is also generating little conscious simulations of people partitioned from the interpreter and the rest of the self. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it makes me think, for instance, uh, I've, I've read a fair amount of Carl Sagan. I love picking up a Carl Sagan book and, and reading it. Uh, you know, it gives me comfort. And as, a, as such, I do kind of have like a tiny Carl Sagan in my brain, like an idea of Sagan uh-huh. that uh, is kind of walking around in there or maybe summoned. But, but the really mind-blowing idea is what if that little Carl Sagan has an experience? What oh, if there's yeah. something that it's like to be that simulated Carl Sagan you've like, got? what if he gets into an argument with the little Terrence McKenna in my head. (laughs) Right. I mean, it's still your brain. It's still all the tissue in your head. But what if there's something in there that's a little Carl Sagan simulated by your mind sometimes that has its own wants, desires, experiences? Mm. Now, again, I I recognize that this is way out there in speculative territory, and and I do not claim that there is strong evidence for this. But it is one of those strange things that I'm trying to think of reasons to rule it out, and I can't. Uh, So if this seemingly weird scenario were the case, would there be any way to know for sure that you weren't a conscious, low-resolution simulation of a mind Mm. inside a brain ruled by the tyrannical dictator mind that could blink you in and out of existence by the whims of a dream or imagination? Well, that sounds like a theological model there. Yeah. Fortunately, again, I don't think there's any strong evidence this is the case. Sleep tight. (laughs) All right. Well, there you have it. That is uh, Anthology of Horror, Volume 2. And if you loved it, you don't have to wait an entire year. You just have to wait uh, a couple of days for the next installment because we're going to be back with Anthology of Horror, Volume 3, in which uh, we'll look at an episode of The Outer Limits and an episode of The Simpsons Treehouse of Horror. I can't wait. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you will find them. And uh, let's see, what else can you do? You can find the show wherever you find podcasts. Rate and review. Subscribe. That's a great way to help. Check out our other show, Invention. Uh, it's at InventionPod.com, and it is available everywhere as well. And if you want to interact with other fans of the show, you can go to our Facebook group. That is the Stuff to Blow Your Mind discussion module. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Death Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
Thank you.